Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. So right there, you know, and this is an assumption that the liberals always make, that unless there's some secular history to support what the Bible says, you can't trust the Bible. But, you know, the reality is the Bible is, you can trust the Bible more than the secular histories. The Bible gets it right. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Daniel chapter 6. Now here's Pastor Brian. Okay, Daniel chapter 6, and this is the story that includes Daniel going into the lion's den. This is probably the most famous story in the Old Testament. I mean, you think of all, all of your life, maybe even as a child, you know, where you would see this image somewhere, Daniel in the lion's den, and, you know, it's become a sort of proverbial. You talk about somebody going into the lion's den these days. You're talking about somebody going into a really difficult or dangerous situation. And it's drawn from the scripture, just like in the last chapter we looked at the, the writing on the wall. You know, how <laughs> is it interesting how many these figures of speech that are just part of, of the English language are actually derived from scripture? It's pretty amazing. So as we pick up in the sixth chapter... We come now, we transition from Babylon under the Babylonian king, Belshazzar. And now the scene is still Babylon, but now the new king is Darius. The, Darius the Mede, he's called. And remember, this is the second kingdom in that image that Nebuchadnezzar saw. He was the head of gold. That was Babylon. And then there was the arms and the chest of silver, and that represented the Medo-Persian Empire. So now the, the Medes and the Persians have conquered Babylon. They've taken over. And at the very last verse of the fifth chapter, it says that Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at age 62. It probably more accurately reads, received the kingdom at age 62. And, and there's a reason why I think that's probably the better reading. So like we've seen, and I just, you know, I, I'm informing you guys of this just so, so you know for yourself and you know if conversation comes up sometime. You know, there are people out there that you'll start talking to about the book of Daniel. And, and they might say, oh, well, you know, Daniel, that wasn't really written by Daniel. It wasn't really written in the time that it was purported to be written in. It was written later. And th those aren't really prophecies. You know, we, we've talked about that. 
And last time we talked about Belshazzar, remember they said for centuries, from the third century when the first person challenged the authorship of Daniel, I think it was the third century, from that point forward, one of the things that they claimed was that Belshazzar never existed. He was a figment of the imagination of the writer. He would, and the reason for that was because he wasn't spoken of anywhere else in any existing histories. So, so right there, you know, and this is an assumption that the liberals always make, that unless there's some secular history to support what the Bible says, you can't trust the Bible. But, you know, the reality is the Bible is, <laughs> you can trust the Bible more than the secular histories. The Bible gets it right. So remember Belshazzar, he didn't exist. Nobody's ever heard of him. And then it was in 1854. Remember I shared that quote from that one professor in 1850 who just absolutely rejected that there was any such person as Belshazzar in history. And four years later, they found that cylinder, uh, that cuneiform cylinder with a reference to Belshazzar there. So now we've got a similar problem with Darius. So Darius the Mede does not exist in secular history. There's, there's no record of Darius the Mede. Cyrus conquered Babylon. Cyrus became the king of, well, he was the Persian king, but he, you know, he took over. And all secular history attributes all of this to Darius. There is no Darius prior to Cyrus. There's a Darius that follows Cyrus. And so because there's no historical secular references to Darius, again, the argument is that he, this guy didn't exist. This is a fictitious person he's made up. You know, I was thinking about Pontius Pilate. Do you know they said the exact same thing about Pontius Pilate? Is that Pontius Pilate is a fictitious character. He was invented by the gospel writers to, you know, make the story a little more dramatic. No record anywhere of any Pontius Pilate as the governor of Judea until 1961. Now, some of you have been to Israel with us, right? Who's been to Israel with us? When you go to Caesarea today, there is the Pilate Stone. There is a replica of the stone that was found in 1961, which makes a reference to Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea. So just because no one's discovered in any archaeological dig up into this point, any references to Darius the Mede, um, I'm not worried about it. If Daniel said, this is what happened, then this is what happened. And there, there are different ways that you can explain this. Some people have sought to explain it without any secular reference. Some people have sought to explain it by saying that Darius was actually the name given to the general who under Cyrus conquered the city. And then he was put as the king over it. And that's why verse 31, when it says that Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62, it was something that was bequeathed to him by Cyrus, perhaps. 
But remember, it's the Medo-Persian Empire. So there is a, there is a, a Median aspect to it. And he's referred to as Darius the Mede and Cyrus is referred to as Cyrus the Persian. So again, there's speculation that uh, he, was, he was put in the position. He's just the ruler over this. But we, we don't really know exactly what the story is. You know, perhaps someday it will be discovered. But I just personally take it that he was exactly who Daniel says he was here. So, so then as we go on, it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps, satraps is the way to pronounce it, not satraps, um, by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So here's Daniel. Remember, we were introduced to Daniel again in the fifth chapter when he was actually in retirement. In Belshazzar's reign, he was pretty much in retirement. And then the queen mother advised Belshazzar, there's a man in your kingdom. He can interpret the writing on the wall. So, so Daniel comes out of retirement. And remember, even though Belshazzar's slain that very night and the kingdom is transferred, Daniel is made the third ruler in the kingdom. So as Darius comes to power, maybe Daniel's reputation preceded him as a great man in the court. So however that all worked out, Daniel finds himself there. And as is the case with Daniel, he's doing such an extraordinary job that the king says he needs to be in charge of everything, put everything under him. And, you know, what a great model for us as believers. Daniel serves in these pagan courts, but he serves just like the New Testament tells us, whatever you do, do it with all your heart as to the Lord and not to men. So he serves in the court of Nebuchadnezzar and he serves now in the court of Darius and he'll serve under Cyrus and he's extraordinary because undoubtedly he's doing everything that he's doing as unto the Lord. That's a good model for us. So at this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find ground for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. So when you succeed, sometimes people get jealous. And so that's the case here. So remember now, of course, Daniel is an outsider. He's not even a Babylonian. He's a Jew. And so these Medo-Persian administrators and so forth, they're envious of Daniel and they want to somehow disqualify him. So they're looking for something that they can charge him with 
relating his conduct in his service to the government. How many people serving in high positions in government could you not find something (laughs) against them? I mean, isn't it true? It's like, you know, people get into office, they get into places of power and everybody thinks it's all great. And then maybe they're going to get some sort of a promotion or something. And so all of a sudden, all this stuff comes out. And they're like, oh, well, yeah, I forgot to mention that. Um, and, and, you know, that's sadly, it's far too pervasive in our current cultural situation. So they could find no corruption in him. No corruption in Daniel because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charging against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So, wow, we cannot get him. There's there's no corruption in him. There's not, no skeletons in his closet, so to speak. How are we going to nail this guy? How are we going to knock him out of this position? Well, it's going to have to be something to do with his God. They knew this much about Daniel. They knew that he was not only not corrupt, but that he worshiped a different God. He worshiped his God. He worshiped the Hebrew God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any God or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty shall be thrown into the lion's den. So this is what they're suggesting. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Man, these guys are schemers. They've thought all of this out. They know Daniel prays. And so this is how we're going to nail him. We're going to get the king to make a decree that no one can pray unless they're praying to him. And then he's going he's gonna to seal it. He's going to sign it. And once he signs it, it's irreversible according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians. So remember how we talked about Nebuchadnezzar? So here's, we see, remember the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, he is, as far as the image goes, he is the great, he's the greatest. He's the head of gold. But, but another kingdom will come after you, which is inferior to you. Here's a way you see some of the inferiority of the kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar was, he was the final word in his kingdom. He was the law. There, there would never have been any way under Nebuchadnezzar's rule to do anything like this. Had they done something like this, he would have just said, forget your law, I'm throwing you in the lion's den. 
That, that's what he would have done. But now the Medes and the Persians, they have this written into their legislation that once a decree was signed, it was irreversible. It was unalterable. It couldn't be repealed. So King Darius, he put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. So that's an important point, I think, because Daniel is not looking at the law and saying, oh, I'm going to just defy that law. Daniel, this is what he does. This is who he is. He's a man who for years and years and years has three times a day knelt down with his windows open toward Jerusalem and prayed. So what he's not going to do is he's not going to let this law stop him from doing that. He's going to keep doing what he was doing. Now, just for a second, just think about what he was doing. He, He got on his knees and he prayed three times a day. You know, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about just how easy it is to to get in the habit of just sort of praying casually. And we can pray casually. Thank God we can pray casually. We can be driving down the street and we're praying. We can be jogging along and we're praying. And we can be doing anything and praying. But I think that there is a time and a place too to have some really concentrated prayer, some really focused prayer. I know for me, I do pray on the fly a lot. And I'm glad that I can do that. And I'm glad God hears me. But sometimes I think, man, I need more focused time with the Lord. I need more concentrated time. I need, I need a time when there's not something that can distract me that fast. Like my phone vibrating when a text comes through or something like that. Or, you know, if you're driving and you've got to watch the road or whatever. So it, it was just between this passage and something else I was listening to somebody say, recently about their own experience in prayer. And they were talking about getting down on their knees and praying. Actually, it was a person who was sharing the story about how when he was a boy, he's an older gentleman now, and he's pastoral ministry. His dad was a pastor. He said he remembered he would get up early in the morning on a Sunday and go downstairs to get a bowl of cereal. And as he would pass by his father's office, he would find him there on his knees praying in preparation for his preaching that day. That's what he did. But, you know, even as I heard him telling that story, I was thinking, wow, you know, there is, there's something to that. And so we're all busy and life is hectic. And again, thank God we can pray casually. But I'm feeling just for myself, like I need to have more focus in prayer. And I need to have those times where, I just get away by myself. And 
getting on our knees is not, there's nothing, you know, extra spiritual about that in one sense, but it is a posture of humbling ourselves before God. And I find when I do pray on my knees, I can be more focused. So that's what Daniel did. He did that three times a day. Now, then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. So this royal decree, you shall not pray. Now, this was a long, long time ago. But, you know, there are still decrees, even in our land, that go forth from some judges that are decrees, you shall not pray. Think of high school graduation ceremonies. The courts have actually stepped into high school graduation ceremonies and threatened with jail time students or faculty who would pray. And especially anyone who would pray in the name of a deity, like in Jesus' name. And this is not anything that just started happening in the last few years. This has been happening for a few decades now. Back in the 90s, I remember so many cases where what, if it was a football game or you know, some kind of a high school event, some atheist group protested that they were praying before the game or something, and then the ACLU came in and the courts came in and the judges said, you can't pray. And I read one, one statement by a judge and it, I mean, it was pretty chilling really because he was threatening high school kids that they would be put in jail if they dared try to pray at their event And then he actually said at the end of his little warning that if they violated his rule, that they would regret, listen to this, they would regret the day they were born. Wow. Man, sounds like a Medo-Persian king or something. It was just a judge in Texas who said that. But isn't that interesting? So this, this isn't ancient history. This is, this is current. And, and of course, I mean, there, there are plenty of places in the world right now where it, it is not just a threat. It is a reality that you will be persecuted, jailed, killed in some cases. So sometimes it becomes dangerous business to be a believer and to be someone who prays. For the month of January, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled 
40 Days of Grace by Paul David Tripp. Choices that we make have lasting effects, and we all live with regrets. But are you paralyzed by your past? Do you live in the dark shrouds of if-onlys? Does your past influence your present more than God's past, present, and future grace? Have you received and are living out the forgiveness that is yours because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Well, in his book, 40 Days of Grace, Paul David Tripp will take you deep into the grace of God. He will help you understand God's grace that exposes what you want to hide so he can forgive you and deliver you. You will get to know God's grace that welcomes you to live with a hope in the present because it will free you to leave your past behind. God's grace is essential for the Christian life. It is something you will never deserve, but can always expect. If you need to experience the grace of God, we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com to order 40 Days of Grace by Paul David Tripp. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you this book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Daniel. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.